obviously I've just come back from my maternity leave, which is a good chance to kind of compare yes. two situations. How old's your baby? Um, 10 months. Oh, a boy or girl? A girl, so Ellie. Ah. She was born on the first day of lock- the first lockdown, so <gasps> it's been a bit of a journey. <laughs> she has had her whole life in lockdown. Yeah, she doesn't know anything different. People in the supermarket are like, oh, I wonder what they think about wearing masks and stuff. And like, she literally knows nothing else. She doesn't know any different. No, that's so true. My my little one was born um, the year before. So he turned one at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah, so uh, Ellie's is the 24th. A year apart. Wow. Yeah, I, to be honest, when you uh, said that you had a, a toddler, it, did, it took me a few minutes to click that obviously you were doing all of this work while you had a toddler <laughs> had a baby <laughs> well not even a toddler a baby <laughs> yes that's a baby yes yeah wow <laughs> um, in hello and welcome to Ethiopia together this is a new podcast series where we're going to share the stories of some of the amazing people we work with across Ethiopia to bring an end to preventable poverty So welcome to Ethiopiaid's uh, podcast, Behebret. I'm Fran, the fundraising manager at Ethiopiaid, and today I am chatting with Indy McDowell, co-founder of one of our smaller maternal health partners. Um, the Ethiopiaid team were really lucky uh, last week to have had a chat with Indy over Zoom, um, and we all found it so inspiring that I wanted you to also share the chance um, to hear Indy speak. So Indy, please could you introduce yourself and tell us about what you do. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I'm Indy. I am a medical anthropologist and a clinical midwife. And at the moment, I am based in Guragi Zone in southwestern Ethiopia. Uh, I've been there since 2016. Um, I worked first at the referral hospital, then at a government health centre. And then along with a local colleague at Sede, I uh, helped to open and now manage a birth centre and medical clinic. Could you tell us how you became interested in maternal health and how you came to be in Ethiopia? Yes, um, after I finished my first degree in anthropology, I had an internship with UNICEF and um, I had the opportunity to work alongside the maternal and neonatal health team. And they were an amazing team um, doing lots and lots of good. But the other thing was <clears throat> there were lots of projects that seemed to be put into place because that is what the tick boxes said ought to happen not necessarily because that was actually what was going to have the biggest impact on the ground. And I saw this happening and wondered if there was a better way of helping the local midwives, the local staff, to be more involved in the implementation of health projects. And then I realised I actually didn't know very much myself about what that entails. And I didn't have any clinical experience or any clinical knowledge. And if I was going to be part of the set of people who are trying to put into place new programmes, I really ought to have some understanding of what's actually happening. So I went back to the UK and retrained as a midwife. Um, Fast forward a couple of years and there was an opportunity to join a team in Ethiopia at Atat Hospital, which is a medical missionaries hospital. They were looking for midwives to help establish the neonatal services. That was something I've been really interested in all through my time as a, a midwife student. And I put my name forward and said, I'd love to come and help. I'd love to be part of this and was accepted and then found myself in Gragazin in Ethiopia. Wow, that is quite the journey, isn't it? It must have been really an exciting time for you. (laughs) It was definitely an adventure, yeah. 
And could you uh, tell us how you then came to to set up your your project? There's the story that the reason we opened the clinic in the first place, that was because the, a woman died. The reason that Atsi and I came together to open the clinic, we were both working at the referral hospital. It has been incredible in reducing sort of maternal mortality, maternal morbidity, but because there are so, so many women coming to the hospital and relatively so few midwives, there's never really the time for each of the midwives to give the sort of women-centered one-on-one care that as a British midwife, I've always been taught is the best way to help women through a birth. And Atsi and I, one day were on shift together and it was a very, very busy shift. Just to give you some context, there are anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 deliveries a year at the hospital. And on any one shift, there are three midwives. So you can imagine how busy the midwives are. So there's one shift, it was at Sadie and I and another of the midwives, Salam, who also joins us at the clinic. And we were very busy. We had lots of women. We had lots of um, surgeries going on in the meantime. And a young woman came from one of the outlying villages to the hospital. And this is the first time she'd seen anybody in her pregnancy. And she had been absolutely ravaged by AIDS. So her body, lots of her systems were failing. Um, She had infections raging. And, you know, there was there was very little opportunity for us just as the midwives to to implement any real care plan. So we did what we could um, and then called for senior help. There's one doctor and we're waiting for her to come and see us. But in the meantime, carried on with everything else that was going on in the ward. And it wasn't until sometime later when I had left the ward to go to the laundry rooms to collect some of the, you know, the gowns that women wear into into theatre. I came back into the room and I found Asiri and Salam at this woman's bedside and she had died. And she had died without any of us realizing. Mm. And that at Sadie and I was just completely unforgivable. And we couldn't ever think or justify why or how we hadn't realized that a woman under our care had died. And at that point, we kind of realized both of us didn't really want to practice like that anymore. You know, that was that was not it was not honoring our role as midwives. It was not uh, allowing us to go any way in in ensuring that women have a good experience in childbirth, let alone stay alive through the experience. So that was kind of the push we needed to break away. And after that, we did. Um, within a few months, we both left our posts and we had started all the fundraising, all the planning, all the meetings, everything you can imagine um, to set up the clinic. So after that, it took us eight months, during which time we were sort of seeing women um, in their homes, in our home, wherever wherever we could find. Uh, and then we managed to get all the building work finished. We managed to get all the licenses in place. And um, in the beginning of 2018, we opened the clinic. Wow. I mean, from such a heartbreaking story to something so positive, that is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what we always say to ourselves. Like, we'll, we'll never forgive ourselves for not realising that she had died, but at least from that there was some good. Mm. Um, and so you, you mentioned Atsi there, who's your co-founder of, of the clinic. Could you just tell us a bit more about your, your relationship and how that's developed? So she is a Garagi midwife. She was one of the first midwives in the area to be formally trained. And she has, she's this amazingly experienced, hugely knowledgeable midwife who has seen and done 
everything you can imagine with regards to pregnancy and delivery. Um, so she was my guide and my mentor at the hospital. And we spent, you know, many hours together, many long shifts together, um, and realized that we had lots and lots of similarities in the way we thought about midwifery and we thought about maternal health and the way we wanted to implement um, health programs. So that's that's how we sort of realized that possibly together we we could be a really really good team of making this happen because Sally has all the experience all the knowledge the standing in the community and um, she's very well known very well respected and then I have you know the access to potential funding and so we kind of thought we'll look together we can we could maybe do this incredible well you just yeah and you just touched on it there that um Sarazi was your um, was your midwife so while all of this was going on you were both pregnant and then with a very small baby uh, how did you write yes. all of this <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? looking back I've got no idea but it, it's I think child rearing and childbirth and pregnancy is it's very very different in Ethiopia it's not that it's less of like a huge life change it's just that it's so normal for women to always be pregnant or having babies or breastfeeding that it, it's much more absorbed into the, into the day-to-day -day way of life so everybody all women you work up until you deliver basically but lots of accommodations are made so in the clinic, I would do lots of the admin type things, which meant I, I didn't have to run around, you know. And then when Raphael, my son, came along, um, he was either on my back, or that said his back, in someone else's arms, you know, he was always with us. And I was never, ever alone with him. I think that's particularly with this pandemic. That's what so many women have struggled with, understandably, because you know this. It is a huge thing to have, you know, this, this little life that you've got to somehow get through every day. Um, and when you're alone doing that, I can't even imagine. I my you know my heart goes out to the women who are alone, but also they have my respect completely because I was never like that. I always had it steady. No, that's such a that's such a, a beautiful image that you've painted there of your community and yeah, looking after small children and how to raise small yeah. children uh, in Ethiopia. And as I've said, I've recently returned from maternity leave and giving birth in a pandemic and not having. Um, not seeing any of my family really for quite I can't imagine I know it must be so so difficult hats off to all the women in the UK or around the world who've done this in the pandemic it's incredible and continue to do it even to this day it, yeah exactly that and actually that brings me quite nicely onto something that I've been thinking about quite a lot throughout my pregnancy and you know having worked for Ethiopia for over five years now that um, and we do a lot of work with maternal health. And I've read lots of stories of um, women giving birth in Ethiopia or, you know, their their own journeys. And it's made me think a lot about um, my journey and how, how different it would be and how I felt extremely um, safe and protected within the NHS and, and knowing that I was quite comfortable. But the whole time I was thinking of um, women in Ethiopia going through the same experience and what what their experiences were were like and I just wondered if you could um take us on the journey of a, a woman who falls pregnant near to your clinic and would be under your care and what what care she can expect of course I mean my so I could only talk about our little area of Gregory Zone I don't know very much about the rest of the country um I've had the chance to visit some areas but not many um so certainly in our area lots of women you know leaving school, leaving college, getting married and having a baby is kind of the natural progression of life. So it's definitely expected of you. Um, as soon as you're out of school, people will start to ask when you're getting married um, and when you're having a baby. 
so the pressure is definitely there for women to have have children and if they can't do that uh for example we had a, a nurse at the hospital who had a hysterectomy quite young in her life because of um huge fibroids so she will never have children and so she will never marry and that's quite a difficult thing of her to come to terms with really um so all women are expected to have babies Gosh, yeah women never really know how old they are in Ethiopia it's in our area of Ethiopia because age is not considered particularly important you know it doesn't make a difference to your day-to-day -day life so it's not necessarily known but from what I can tell I think most women tend to have their first babies somewhere between 17 and 20. It is it's very valued and it's very wanted and, it, and women are very happy to be pregnant but I think because you know generationally so many women have died so many babies have died there's been so much trauma around pregnancy and childbirth that they almost don't you know emotionally invest in a pregnancy almost until the baby is there so you tend to find lots of women not announcing a pregnancy they simply you know turn up one day with a slightly bigger belly nothing like this like gender reveal or, or naming days or baby showers and nothing nothing like that no no, no. <laughs> but um access to antenatal care is so varied even in our area you know, if you live in the villages, um, you've got the health centres or the health posts or the private clinics or the hospitals. So that's kind of your like array of options as to where you can go. And the government is really trying to push for women low risk, like your normal low risk woman, to have four antenatal appointments throughout their pregnancy. So it tends to be starting around 16, 20 weeks, which is when the baby starts to move. And you'll find the midwife saying, when you feel your baby moving, that's when you need to start to move, get to a health centre, get to a hospital, have your first antenatal care. Um, and so that's also the advice that we give. So we, if we're checking a pregnancy test and it's positive and we know that women are very early on, um, we'll say, you know, this is what you can do in the meantime, but for full antenatal care, wait until you're 16 weeks, 17 weeks, wait until the baby starts to move and then come and see us. So that's the first appointment. Um, and we do quite similar things to the UK midwives in terms of antenatal care. You know, we check all the hemoglobin levels, we check the baby's growth, we check the mother's vital signs, you know, her blood pressure, um, her wee for infection and things like that. Um, and then there's the Ethiopian side. So we check for malaria, we check for typhoid, and we give a course of deworming. All these other things that you'd only really find in a country like Ethiopia. And that's all in the initial appointment, yes. Cool. And um, so then it tends to be from that point, every month you would come to see, or every month, six weeks, you'd come to see the midwives, uh, hopefully four times. In reality, I, I mean, at our clinic, we're very, very lucky because we, I think, again, because we've got that city and she's so well-known and so well-respected, if she tells a woman, you, like, come in six weeks' time, the woman will come in six weeks' time. Um, at the hospitals, where there isn't necessarily that, like, personal connection, I think the women are sort of assuming if they feel well and their baby is moving around, then they can't actually afford to take the time and the money to get to a health centre for antenatal care. Uh, and then it comes to delivery. So part of part of watching an Ethiopian midwife give an antenatal care appointment is really interesting. They're very, very thorough and very, very good. And they give this whole ream of information, including you know preparation for labour, when to come to a health centre. So at the moment in Ethiopia, um, home births are not allowed. They're, they're illegal. And, you know, as a British midwife initially, for me, that was a really, you know, really difficult thing to come to terms with because, you know, we're taught so much about the importance of women being comfortable where they are in their labouring and, you know, a supportive environment. But actually, you know, having now been there for four or five years, I, I agree with that as a, in Ethiopia specifically, I, home births, I don't think are safe. 
So I completely agree with the idea that women ought to be in hospitals or health facilities with a trained attendant giving birth. So when women start to feel like they're in labour, they would come, if I'm talking about the clinic, they come to the clinic. Uh, we have them walk around for a little bit so we can walk. We don't like to do too many uh, internal examinations. Um, if, if, we, if we don't have to, we'd rather not. So to judge whether someone's in labour, we like to get them walking. If they can keep walking and keep talking, uh, we sort of say, look, things might be happening. Fantastic. It could be time. Eat, drink, talk, walk. If you want to go home, go home, you know, relax, come back to us when you can no longer talk and walk, basically. And that tends to be the time where your labour is really picking up. Things are changing and, and we are more than happy then to have you stay in the clinic and we'll start to monitor you according to the partograph. So checking the baby's um, heart rate, checking the woman's blood pressure, all of those sort of technical clinical things that keep women safe in pregnancy and through the labour. And then until she has a baby, uh, she'll stay in the clinic. At which point we introduce all these crazy English things like the birthing ball and rebozo and a birthing rope hanging from the ceiling, <laughs> which more often than not causes a lot of laughter, which which is great. I mean, I don't mind if people are laughing at me. As long as they're laughing, that's fine. That's a really great way to labour. Uh, and some women embrace it. Some look at me very sceptically and like tentatively sit on a birthing ball for a few moments and then get up. Um, and some women are all for it. So <laughs> that's always quite fun. <laughs> I suppose that's probably a similar mix here as well, though. Everyone has their own style. We really strongly believe in skin to skin, delay call clamping, you know, an interrupted first hour mum and baby. Again, in the hospitals, the turnover is so fast. You know, you've got women coming in, laying down on the backs, push out a baby, baby goes to be weighed, wrapped up, and then given back to the woman in the postnatal room. There's none of the, the importance of the first hour of, like, initiation of breastfeeding or all the all the settling of the baby systems that comes with skin to skin but in our clinic we really believe in that so we don't do anything for the first you know all being well with the woman and the baby we don't do anything for the first hour at all it's completely hands off um and then they stay with us for as long as they want it tends to be uh the baby has a big breastfeed they both have a sleep and then they wake up and we give them you know there's a postnatal drink called adja which is made from roasted, pounded um, grains, I suppose. So we tend to give them like a jug of that and then they gradually make their way home. So after that, we see them through the postnatal period. We go to the house uh, for the first couple of weeks and then after about week three, week four, they come to the clinic for their last couple of postnatal visits. And then we say goodbye. We say, come back and see us once a month every month so we can measure baby's growth um, which is a new program that we've brought in quite recently and and then we see them in a couple of years time for the next baby and that tends to be how it goes at the clinic at least wow thank you for that i mean there are so many similarities as you're talking um through with the the midwife led unit for, for birthing um I, I just thought do you um do you do scans yeah so as i can scan we have a small um, ultrasound machine. Um, some, there was a group of midwives and nurses who came from America and brought us some equipment, including an ultrasound. So Atsi has had all the training at one of the hospitals and she can do, yep, she can scan. So I try to, I try to keep quite like hands off, everything clinical, 
you know, I, I don't really take a clinical role in the clinic as, as far as I can. I sort of try to do the more the doulery role and the supportive role and the running around and grabbing things and, and very much keep the actual care, the midwifery care in that steady's hands. Because she's the one the women want to see and she's the one with all the experience and all the knowledge. And these are her, you know, her women, her sisters, her cousins, her friends. So I feel like that's her role. So whatever we can train her up in, we train her up in. Well, that's amazing. Actually, that is one of my questions that... Um, I one of the first things I learned about Ethiopia is how proudly independent they are as you know one of the only nations in yes. Africa not to have been colonized and I wondered how how have you been received as a, a a white westerner coming into a local community um so I think mine was probably quite different from other clinicians working in Ethiopia firstly because Atat um, is a missionary hospital so they've always had nuns working there and the nuns tend to be from Germany or Italy, so white. Um, so the, the, the idea of like, and and the, the the hospital has been it has been incredible. It has done so so much for the community, so much over the last fifty years. Um, so anyone associated with the hospital, insofar as you're like you're a white person coming in to offer some sort of clinical care, takes on some of the the privileges that come with ATAT Hospital. Because that was my initial introduction to the community as part of ATAT, that smoothed any bumps. And then I had Atsi, of course, and she is fierce, you know? <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to cross her. And the women came to see that, you know, she was, she she vouched for me. And also, I, you know, I I wasn't there to take over in any capacity. You know, I from from the outset, we always said, this is Atsi's clinic, it's named for her, it, you know it's it's her clinic I'm I just want to help her great it's just yeah sensitively done I personally was uh, in a midwife-led unit and I had to be transferred and it was such a minor I knew that being transferred for me meant a 15 minute ride in an ambulance with three medical staff and hmm. um, I'd be going to a hospital where I would be received it was you know it pretty easy pretty straightforward pretty routine they do that you know so regularly and for me that was I knew that it would, could happen so I was prepared but it's still pretty daunting could you um tell us a story about perhaps an incident where there has been a complication it's quite it's, it's a very scary time for that to happen geographically mm -hmm. we're not far from the hospital at all you know but we don't have a vehicle so if we're trying to transfer women or at your high in our labours needed transfer we have to buy a badge and Badaj is like a little tuk-tuk and we are we're not on a main road we're off we're, we're away from any paved or cobbled streets so it's just mud um so we've got that at one end then there's a stretch of paved road and then that at the other end so all in all it takes probably half an hour 40 minutes to get to the hospital in the rainy season that can double uh, if not more because the Badajs can't get down to the clinic and and so we have to walk to the road uh, with, with a laboring woman or a woman bleeding that is that's a really 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 scary experience um, and we've got lots of things in place at the clinic that mean we can manage lots of the obstetric emergencies but the thing with an obstetric emergency is it happens so fast and it is so dramatic no matter how well prepared you are and how much equipment you've got it is always quite intimidating it's always quite scary so we had a woman who delivered with us it was a beautiful labor beautiful delivery you know it was a very it was one full of laughter um, all her sisters were there. It was a room full of women and this beautiful little baby was born. Oh. And then and then she started bleeding. After you've had a baby, if women start bleeding, it, it's, it is incredible how fast um, they lose blood. 
because if you imagine the uterus at term it fills it fills woman's body it's big and then and when the placenta comes away that leaves this sort of this open wound with all the blood that pumps down to the uterus to keep the baby alive still pumping so it, it your blood loss after you've had a baby and delivered your placenta and you start bleeding it's very it's it's huge quickly so we obviously had to deliver her and had to transfer her sorry and we always for for a birth now we always keep a badge we call one of the badge drivers and ask them to come and wait outside of the clinic so we know if we need to transfer at least we would never have to wait for a badge to get to us we start from having the badge on site so this this woman we um Great. we did everything we could do in the clinic we started all the medication you can start we um we have a special thing called a nask which is like um uh like a wetsuit kind of that you wrap around the woman's legs seriously you wrap it around her legs you wrap it around her abdomen and it kind of like squeezes all the blood that's left in her back up to her vital organs um so we put that on right so we had to get her into the tuk-tuk to the hospital in the meantime trying to work out what we're going to do with the baby because all her sisters had gone home to tell everybody about this wonderful delivery um and there was no one in the clinic and it was you know like one of us in the back with her awkwardly laying sort of across into the driver's halfway to the hospital she lost consciousness because she was still bleeding and i you know once again i am so grateful that said he was there because she was calm and um, i could see you know under the surface i could see how scared she was but on to everyone else she was calm she was collected she knew exactly what to do exactly what to say um she got she took calm the driver down because the driver he's you know he's just a driver he had no idea um what on earth was going on and why you know i was there like shaking um and we got her to the hospital in the end we drove her straight down to the delivery room like through the middle of the hospital in the tuk-tuk to get her into the, get her to the room where all the all the surgeons were waiting um we're really lucky because if we, if we call her head to the hospital and say we've got somebody bleeding she needs she'll need to go into theater now they've set everything up ready for us so they know to welcome us um and we got her in and she was she was all right in the end thank goodness um she had a hysterectomy there was no other way to stop bleeding uh her sister and the baby made it in a second tuk tuk not very not very soon after and it was all fine in the end but for that you know i suppose hour which felt like forever at the time it was it was a really terrifying experience mm -hmm. yeah mm. so dramatic the, the the differences are just yeah not having an ambulance on hand and having to kind yeah. of make do um yeah must be terrifying yeah. when you're in that situation but um it seems that you 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 do manage and um you've said that you you haven't had um any no. any deaths or any um problems and there it was, was a happy, happy ending, ending to it the was story, happy, right? yes and you know she she <laughs> was in the hospital for a few days recovering and then she came back to us for her for her postnatal care and she doesn't really remember any of it she was like, oh, yeah, I knew, I knew, like, I knew I felt a bit weak and a bit funny and I knew I had to go in a bad judge, but it wasn't, you know, it was fine, wasn't it? And I was like, well, that, that is, that is testament to how calm a midwife can feel when they are yeah. freaking out. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. So, yeah, it's just so interesting and, yeah, incredible. Okay, well, to move on from, um, from birthing. <laughs> um, I know that, um, so Ethiopia Aid, we um, have funded a few of your, yes. your projects that you've yep. been working on. And um, I know that the um, you have quite a community approach to your way of working and um, and therefore a continuity of care, which is something that we talk about quite a lot in the, in the UK, but we're not 
quite there yet and it seems that <laughs> you are I was a little bit about your your work in the community and how you kind of bring women together and and work with them throughout their definitely definitely uh yeah so <laughs> we Ethiopia we first came across Ethiopia when we just started um so we were very new at uh, running a health center you know we knew we were good midwives but we didn't know if we were good administrators or business owners or managers um so everything was still a little bit well, very intimidating for us um and then we came across ethiopia aid and mm. at Sadie and i for a long time well you know relatively long time since we started the clinic started thinking about the clinic we always knew we wanted it to be very much community informed um for me this was because i'd seen elsewhere in the world that 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 had seemed to work in terms of um, health empowerment. And for Atsi, simply because these were her families, you know, she was related to almost everybody uh, in some convoluted way or another. Um, and, and so for us both, it just made sense that the sort of the health projects we're offering and the public health and the, the wash, everything that we're, we're offering really needs to come from the community. There's no point us saying, okay, we're gonna teach you all about this. If, if they were going, well, yeah, you could, I guess, but we're not that interested in it. Fair enough. So one of the programmes we wanted to do initially was to um, take health education back into the villages. So rather than relying on, on women, children, men coming to the hospitals uh, and learning about, you know, vaccination or the latest surgical programme or you know, what, what current epidemics uh, Ethiopia is experiencing, just by being in the hospital, we could take it to them. So that's, that's where the first programme, Inside Outside, that Ethiopia had sponsored came from. And it kind of developed as we thought about it and expanded to include the opportunity, as well as us going to the, to the villages, for, for, for our community to come to us as well. So every day in the clinic, we hosted a different circle. We called it a circle. Um, so one day was antenatal, one day was postnatal, one day was HIV AIDS, one day was uh, ending harmful traditional practices. And it was like, it was a really, and it continues to this day, um, they're quite informal, uh, quite social sessions. And, and we take quite a background role in them. Uh, if we needed to answer any of the technical clinical questions, we're quite happy there. If we think the conversation is veering off to something wildly inappropriate or completely unrelated, we steer it back in again. But for the <laughs> most part, we, we sit and listen. And everyone who's come, they kind of help each other. And once you give, particularly the women, and if they've brought their sisters or their mothers or their aunts or their cousins, there is so much knowledge in the community. But, but women don't necessarily know how much they know. And also how much they've experienced, because so many of the of the older women have had children before, have been through all the breastfeeding problems, or like all the aches and pains and pregnancy, and I can't eat this, and I want to eat this, and what do I do? Um, and far more, you know, real life experience uh, than Atsi and I at that time had, because neither of us had children at that time. Uh, so we wanted it to be like an opportunity for everyone to sort of be together and help each other. And then if they needed the cl clinical technical guidance, we could step in. Um, and it was a really successful program. And we, you know, we were so, so grateful at that point that Ethiopia Aid were willing to give us a chance because, you know, some of the um, requirements for small grants was 
to to give accounts and i you know i sent an email back to lisa saying i would i would love to give you accounts but i don't really know how to write those <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry you know i'm i'm so new to this <laughs> and i think you know to have an organization with the you know the history of ethiopia 8 um actually see what we were trying to do um, despite the fact we didn't have necessarily the administrative things in place to prove that we could do it because at that stage we were just starting um, to, to have someone believe in what we could see and like our vision and our mission was such a huge boost our confidence and um, and it, you know that was really what we needed at that stage because we were sitting there in our clinic being like oh my god okay we've just we've done this <laughs> we're working completely autonomously as midwives you know we have women under our care who we are solely responsible for and it was a, it was a bit um you know it was hugely empowering but it was also quite frightening and then to have ethiopia A's come in and say actually do you know what we can see what you're trying to do and there, there is value in this and you should you should go for it and we'll help you go for it it was just incredible um and we were so so great and to this day continue to be so so grateful uh, and that was the first program and that was really successful I should probably say that the, um, so, um, you came on board as one of our small grants programs. So it's where we um, we see smaller organisations. Obviously, we we um, we also help much larger organisations like the Hamlin um, Fistula Hospital, for example. But the small grants program allows us to see smaller organisations that have so much potential and perhaps need a smaller amount of funding to kind of get them off off the ground and. Um, and, and make it all all happen really um, and so that's why it's it's so important um, and yeah why we're all so proud that you're you are one of our partners to be quite honest but um yeah go on and explain the the, the second program as well yes okay so then um the second program came from the first program which for us was this perfect demonstration of why keeping everything community informed community-based grassroots was so important so we have we had an antenatal circle um, on Mondays on the market day because that's when all the women came to the town anyway, um, and we continue to have that now. And the women were talking about how uh, difficult it was to find time to get to antenatal appointments um, and what do they do with their children and what do they do with the cows and oh and the, you know the tuk tuk stopped coming to their village and it was just you know it was difficult to find the time to get to antenatal appointments. And Nancy and I were sitting there listening to this. Um, I think we both had babies at the time, we were both breastfeeding. Um, so we were, we were just chatting and thinking and, and we sort of said, well, what, what, how can we, we, we're here, you know, as a clinic, we offer antenatal care. And they were like, yeah, no, we know that, we know you do, but we've still got to get to you. If we could go to them, if the midwives could go to the women, that, that seems to solve so many of the problems. It's also the chance for the midwives to, to suss out the home situation. A little bit more you know to see how they're coping to see the sort of environment the baby will come home to the midwives midwives on the move which is the second program that the small grants um program supported for us came from that when we came back to to ethiopia aid and applied again for another grant for this so it's been it's been actually it's been very interesting uh it's been quite sad in seeing some of the the home situations of some of the women um but it's also given us a chance even more to get to know the lay of the land, um, how the different villages work, the sort of the journeys the women have to come, have to take to come to us. Uh, and it's been a really good experience to um, kind of hone midwifery skills 
when you don't have the clinic around you and things to fall back on you have to be able to do everything you know with your own hands and your own ears and your own mind I suppose exactly and actually that brings it back nicely to the the continuity of care idea isn't it the the women that are giving birth know you well <laughs> they have they have met you yes. all, no, multiple times and are therefore much more comfortable yeah. and um I suppose as we as we know are therefore they're much more likely to birth successfully in the birthing unit and because they've had antenatal Definitely. care you've picked Definitely, up any yeah. complications so that you would know all of that in ad- in advance I think I read recently that um only 40 percent of women in Ethiopia have four or more antenatal appointments and it just makes you remember how important antenatal appointments are Definitely. in picking up all of the many situations that can occur over, over Definitely. pregnancy. Sometimes you forget that if you have, if you're surrounded by people you trust, it's so much easier to stay calm and stay centred and not be traumatised by things going really wrong. Exactly. And and this all kind of brings me on to our, our, my kind of closing question in that, um, the the program that you've you, the programs that you've set up and the the clinic that you've created and how do you see that progressing are you do you think that you maybe one day you could grow the clinic move into other areas of Ethiopia is this kind of a, a blueprint for something more or is that too soon to ask and is is so is Ethiopia your home now is is this where you think that you will do your life's oh, work so many questions rolled into that one okay um okay so I suppose in terms of my involvement with Ethiopia I will always be involved you know I had my son there I really became a midwife there it's, it's formed a huge part of um sort of how I see myself today uh I have a son I have a partner he has been incredible you know so supportive so understanding but I think keeping our family together it becomes more and more important. Um, so I think that's something I will I will always have to bear in mind. Uh, I also want to study for a PhD, and I'd like to do that uh, where I did my first degree. Um, so that would necessitate me kind of shifting bases back to the UK for a little while. Um, but I will always always be involved, and I'll always be backwards and forwards. Um, I think it'll just be the division of time will be slightly different. Uh, in terms of where we're going with the clinic, what we have now is two years of demonstrated evidence that this community-informed, community-based um, partnership between a local midwife and perhaps an expat midwife or a midwife with strong ties to the UK, to America, to a Western country, with that access to funding and to connections and to networks, that, that coming together of those two different elements um, seems to work really, really well for us. And I've, I, you know, I've had already the opportunity to talk to midwives working elsewhere, particularly in the Horn of Africa. And I think what Atsedi and I have managed to achieve together um, could and should be replicated elsewhere. And, you know, it's, it was really difficult initially. And I, I, we came up against it as well. The whole concept of white saviorism in healthcare, in teaching, in, you know, poor countries, the stereotype of mm-hmm. that. And Atsedi, it always made her absolutely furious hearing that. Um, because she and I completely agree with her it just detracts from what we actually are which is two women two midwives with completely different set of skills and a different perspective and a different access to advantages who can make them work together and it's not about you know one of us 
being from the UK, one of us being from Ethiopia. It's just about the fact that we are women working together. And it's that simple. And she cannot understand. Um, I, I was quite upset when, when someone accused me of this and actually just found it all laughable because it was so far from the truth. So I think if there's a way of, of changing uh, aid delivery, health service delivery for women, um, like maternal and child health service delivery that sees this scaling down. So not working from the top down, but working from the bottom up, you know, concentrating on smaller clinics, smaller programs um, in the community, which is, is similar to what uh, Dr. Hamlin was trying to achieve with her Hamlin trained midwives, you know, from the community, she then trained them up and sent them back to their communities. It's that same idea. It's, you know, if, if you can, if you can look, if you can find local trained clinicians for health or teachers for education, um, you know, engineers for, for road projects, or whatever sphere of development you're in, if it, if it remains in local, local ownership and local leadership, it's going to be so much more effective. So in because of that, and because of all the conversations Atsi and I have had around that, she went on to start um, the Association of Independent Midwives in Ethiopia. And I know that that's something that's very close to her heart. I know that's something she would also very much like to. So in terms of the clinic itself, I think we will always continue to operate the clinic because it has had such a demonstrably good impact on the community. And we also, you know, we are midwives and we really enjoy the clinical side of midwifery. So I think it, it will always remain a clinic. I think Atsi will start to split her time between being uh, the senior midwife at the clinic and also leading this, the AIMS, the um, Association of Independent Midwives Ethiopia. I also think we are both really uh, passionate about about encouraging other because because our area is midwifery you know it all comes back to midwives but but it's it's no more important than the same in in education in all these other areas it's just this is what we know so we want to encourage midwives to take a leadership role in the communities you know midwives midwives clinical midwives working on the ground should be holding the positions the higher positions in policy making in in program implementation you know we shouldn't just be at the receiving end we should be leading these and particularly in places like ethiopia in the horn of africa in the in the lmic countries you know it has to be the midwives on the ground who are taking the lead i think and that's anything thinks so i think part of what she where she wants to go in the future is also really pushing that agenda thank you for also touching on um uh, catherine hamlin that's a um a cause that is so close to the hearts of our yes. of our supporters um, and something we've supported her for so many years at Ethiopia. Of course, you know, you can't you can't work in healthcare and maternal healthcare in Ethiopia and not in some way honour the work of the Hamlins. So thank you so much, Indy, for for talking to us and sharing all of your experience. It's just so incredibly interesting, even if just from a, a personal <laughs> perspective. Thank you very much for having me and thank you again to all of the supporters of Ethiopia. You know, we, we could have done what we do without help of charities like Ethiopia. So we are so, so fortunate and so, so grateful to be involved. If you want to hear more about anything we've discussed or to sign up and support this work, head to our website at www.ethiopiaid.org.uk.